Hey, it's Jay, and today we talk to somebody who describes themselves as the butch Ms. Frizzle. I don't know if that's dating me at all, but Ms. Frizzle was this character, this teacher, who had a magical bus, really. I think they, they probably could have created a whole TV show about it. Oh, they did. It was called The Magic School Bus, and it was a science show growing up. And today we're going to talk to someone who is honestly one of the most accomplished independent podcasters and science communicators and science fiction podcasters, although it's not quite a fictional show, as you'll hear. It's a bit of a blend. I love this wrinkle on this program. But we're going to dive deep into the craft of doing something that seems fantastical, creating a story that takes you really off this world, and yet grounding it in good research, in good science, in great storytelling. We'll talk about that element of the craft. And of course, we dive heavily into what it is to be an independent podcaster today. All that and more on this episode of the show. Welcome to Three Clips. I'm your host, Jay Conzo. Here on the show, we have podcasters we admire break down their craft a few little pieces at a time because we believe that creativity is actually the sum total of lots of little things. So yes, the big shows we admire, they inspire us, they motivate us. Sometimes maybe we even disassociate ourselves from them. I could never create a show like that. But when you break down their process and break down their thinking, it all unfolds in the micro. And it's there that any of us can create a great show too. I'm privileged to bring you this program alongside our partner, Castos. This is a Castos original series. Today, we talk to Rose Eveleth of Flash Forward. Rose is a reporter, producer, host, and artist who weaves together fiction, journalism, and personal experiences to try and help people better understand the world in her show. She has a BS in ecology, but after college decided that she didn't want to be a scientist, went back to school, got a master's in journalism with a focus on science, health, and environmental reporting, and yada, 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 here she is today. Rose was also a Radiolab intern, and her many professional credits include blogging for CBS Interactive and Smithsonian Magazine, editing scripts and audio for TED Ed, and producing podcasts for The Story Collider and ESPN. Rose launched Flash Forward independently in 2015 and has produced over 100 episodes. Flash Forward has spawned a couple projects, including a small network of science shows that Rose helms herself. It's a podcast production company and network. And it also spun out Rose's first book, which came out in April of this year, April 2021. It's called Flash Forward, an illustrated guide to possible and not so possible futures. We'll get into dissecting her great show in a second, but first, let's meet Rose Eveleth. When you were 12, you got... (laughs) There we go. Okay, now you know the show. When you were 12, you got scuba certified because you wanted to be the next Jacques Cousteau. What was it about him (laughs) that had you that inspired at a young age? You know, uh, it's interesting. It was really, uh, two things happened at once. I discovered the idea of like, that there were things living underwater, um, which 
seems obvious, but it's one of those things you have to learn, I think, at some point as a as a child. <laughs> and also I had, was reading the autobiography of Jane Goodall. And I just remember thinking that like her going out into the woods and like spending all this time out in the forests, observing the natural world and kind of just sort of being kind of a fly on the wall in that space sounded really cool. And so it was kind of the, those two things together. Um, it was less that I was like looking at pictures of Jacques Cousteau and was like, that's the kind of person I want to be. And more that it was hearing about Jane Goodall's sort of methods and, and being out there. And then also being like, wow, there's all this stuff happening underwater that I would really like to observe and like to be able to see. And so that was kind of why I got very fixated on this idea of scuba diving and sort of my very patient parents in like suburban New Jersey found me a place to get scuba certified. <laughs> what do you do now that you feel is somewhat custody? Well, I mean, I still scuba dive. I love scuba diving. It's, I think, the coolest thing to be able to go into this world that is probably the most alien place there is on planet Earth and be in a place where like humans are just not supposed to be down there, right? Like you're just not <laughs> meant to be there. And I always tell people that like, there are two kinds of scuba divers. There's the swimmers and there are the sitters. And like the swimmers are like, you get in the water and you basically just like power your way as far as you can before you have to turn back um, because you want to see as much as possible. And my method is much more like pick a rock and just hang out there for an hour. Cause like, that's where, in my opinion, you get to see so much more stuff. Cause like things get used to you and they're kind of like, okay, well this big thing is maybe not going to eat me. So I'm going to come out of my little hole and um, all that. So I will just like sit uh, and like look at a rock for an hour underwater, um, which is like truly the, the happiest I ever am. It's going to sound like a little bit of a leap, but I can't help but tie that to stories where and the mm. way different podcasters or different creators of all stripes tell stories like some people do seem to just like we're going to power through we're going to talk about, you know, I came from the business world. So we're going to talk about Facebook and Elon Musk yet again. And it's going to be like biggest name guests and really surface level interviews and stuff like that. And then there's the the folks that either their premise goes really deep or they just seem to in their interviews or stories like visit a small patch of what they could visit and just go really deep into it and yeah. i don't know about you but when i started i i definitely i probably was the power type and then i just maybe got disillusioned or started finding inspirational sources that did the latter and now i'm like oh my goodness that's what this is for it's to go deep yeah yeah i think that's totally true and like there is i think a power in going you know surface level, but far for certain stories, right? Like certain things, you know, you need to get people up to speed on a big topic or something like that. Um, or if there is something that like the plot really drives it, right? If you have stories that are really plot heavy, you do need to get through a lot of it. Um, but to me, like, and maybe this is because my background is in science and I really like kind of like finding the small thing that other people aren't paying attention to amidst the big thing. Um, and kind of being like, huh, why is that there? <laughs> like, what is that doing? Um, and kind of just like looking to see. So I love going weirdly deep on stuff. I love like finding archives, um, you know, finding things that people missed in big stories, you know, where it's like, hey, there's this thing that happened that people aren't talking about and stuff like that. I find that really satisfying. But I like totally understand there are whole genres that are the swimmer genre, like, true crime, like you need to get to the end of the plot, right? You know, or whatever it is. So I get that. And that can be really satisfying if it ties up well or a lot of fiction, right? But also I tend to love fiction that's like kind of more about vibes than about plot. So maybe that's telling. What What are the elements in your mind that make good 
speculative fiction, like something that feels somehow real if you extrapolate out from our current reality and not too cartoonish or like concocted without cause. Like what do you need to do to get the audience to the place where they're with you along that journey instead of like, whoa, hold on, that's too big a leap. Yeah, I mean, I think that this depends on your taste, right? There are whole genres of of speculative fiction that are really about kind of like thinking through the science of the thing, right? There's some hard sci-fi that like, it really matters to know how the warp drive works on the spaceship. That is not my genre. Like I don't, that's not what I read for, but for some people that's really satisfying, right? There's like a satisfying, The Martian is another, is a more, maybe more popular example of like, so much of that is about the actual engineering and kind of like going through the specifics. Um, for me, I think that what makes my the speculative fiction that I like the best is really that it's all about relationships and believable characters that are put into a kind of unbelievable situation. Um, I think you, as a reader, you'll go with a character that you connect with in whatever way, even if it's not like you see yourself in them, but if you sort of like glimpse like, oh, I know what that's like, or, oh, I, I know I know a person like that in my life and I hate them or whatever it is that you're connecting <laughs> with. Um, you will follow that person into really unlikely situations in fiction because you have that relationship with them and because, you know, they have a relationship with another character. So many of these stories um, and books and movies and, you know, TV about space are really about like, human relationships and non-human relationships. Like, how do you care for one another? How do you protect other people? Like, what matters? You know, what do we want to save? And and how do you explain that to someone else? You know, all of those things are things that are happening now. And you just sort of pick that up and plop it into another setting. And when the characters and the relationships are really compelling and believable, I think that you can, you can do almost anything with the setting. You pitched the show at first to places like Gimlet and Radiotopia and more and hoping they would pick it up and, and they all said no. And given, given the limited resources that you start with in that case, when you go the independent route, which I know makes up a lot of our, a lot of our listeners, um, given those limited resources, how did you start to find an audience for the show? Because it wasn't like you could just plug in the show immediately to a pre-existing large audience or, or did you? Did you have you know, a following or an email list or something to help you? Yeah, I did not have a huge following when I first started. Um, I don't really have a huge following now, Um, but uh, I worked with uh, the first season of the show was a partnership with Gizmodo and they have a really big following, obviously. And um, and that was a really great place to start. I mean, I had I think that I had built a name for myself within the kind of like smallish world of science journalism at the time. Um, And that world has gotten a lot bigger since, which is great. And so I kind of had the trust and buy-in from some of the people in science journalism who, who did have really big audiences um, and who were willing to share my work. So I'm eternally grateful for those folks. Um, but I think a lot of it, frankly, and and this is maybe like a bad answer from a business perspective, but it was kind of nice to be able to develop the show without feeling like, oh my God, millions of people are going to listen to this. You know, like you get, I got to do that first season kind of as an experiment, not really knowing how many people would listen, not really caring that how many people were listening because I was like just trying something. And I think that it's really hard to do that now. Um, People feel like, oh, I have to launch and I have to like, within the first 10 episodes, have to really like build this huge audience And that's great if you can do it, right? Like amazing, great. But in some ways there is a luxury in being able to like 
figure yourself out before you have to answer to like lots of people yeah. uh, and lots of listeners. And so, you know, the show didn't really take off until the second to third season um, as I kind of built up lots of episodes. And that was also nice because people could then go back and listen to, you know, 30 episodes or whatever it was or 40 episodes. But yeah, it was a very slow growth at the beginning. And it was truly, I think, mostly word of mouth was kind of how it started. Let's get into the clips. And, and we're going to pull all three clips today from the same episode that you actually suggested to us, Rose. So thanks for that. Uh, it's called, Is Anybody Out There? And yes, it's about humans making contact with alien life. So this episode came out in December 2020. Um, not much going on in the world then, uh, back, back in September of 2020, a group of astronomers published a paper in the journal Nature about discovering a molecule called phosphine in the clouds of Venus. It's a molecule that scientists said could just maybe indicate the presence of alien life. So is there life on Venus? In this clip, you dig into that question. And just some quick context. Before the clip, we hear the theme of the show. You then give us an intro to the episode and a montage of news coverage about the Venus discovery. So this clip we're about to hear is the first time in the episode we're actually hearing your voice doing the hosting thing. So let's take a listen. Now, you might have seen headlines recently that claimed that scientists had found evidence of alien life in the atmosphere of Venus. Is that true? Well, it's sort of complicated. We don't understand Venus, and we've basically been ignoring it for a few decades now. This is Dr. Clara Sousa Silva, a quantum astrochemist at Harvard. I use quantum chemistry, so the kind of the tiniest tools of how things interact with light, to understand phenomena in astronomy. And my main focus is using these quantum processes to try and identify molecules on alien atmospheres that may signify life. So light, as you may have learned in high school physics, is kind of a weird thing, right? It's a particle, and it's also a wave. And you also probably know, even if you did not pay attention in high school physics, that if you pass white light through a prism, you get a rainbow. And you actually can do that, passing light through a prism to break apart the different colors with any kind of light. And if you do that, for example, with a starlight, you will see a rainbow, but there will be shadows on that rainbow. We call them absorption lines. And each one of these absorption lines corresponds to one atom or a molecule. So what this means is that you can look at the light that passes through the atmosphere of a planet, and if you know how, you can decode that light, kind of like a little puzzle. And if you decode the puzzle, you can figure out which molecules are in the atmosphere of that planet. So, Rose, how do you decide how introductory mm. you need to be, how 101 level you need to teach this stuff? You know, for example, let's flash back to your high school physics, if you remember there, versus <laughs> something a little bit more sophisticated or speaking to a savvier audience. How do you find the sweet spot for this particular show? It's a great question. And it's something I'm kind of constantly thinking about because I don't want people to be like, yeah, I know that and like get annoyed. But I also don't want people to be like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you know, um, and I think that, you know, I I do know a bit about my audience because I, I survey them. I, I try to talk to them a lot. We have a Facebook group. We have a Slack channel for a book club, you know, so I try to interact with them a lot. And so I know that the show gets used in high school classrooms a lot. 
I know that the majority of the listeners of the show have an undergraduate degree, but most of them not in science. And so I use that to kind of like try and sort of thread that needle between, hey, remember, you might have heard this and not being too basic. I think also some of it is defined by my own sort of memories of science, which, you know, I got a degree in science and sometimes, especially for physics things, I'm like, wait, what is that again? Like, I don't remember, you know? Um, And so a lot of it is sort of trying to gauge my own understanding and do it kind of in a fun way. So like, even if you do know this pretty well, even if you know about quantum astrochemistry, which I I would guess most of our listeners are not quantum astrochemists because there aren't that many of them in the world. Um, (laughs) But like, even if you do know about light and absorption systems and absorption lines and whatever it is, I try to present it in kind of like a fun way. So it's like, yeah, yeah, you might remember this, but just in case, just here's the reminder. Because otherwise, I don't know, I would rather... I would rather make sure that we've got more people on board with the explanation than like annoy one or two experts. Cause it's really not, if you're a quantum astrochemist, you're not, it's not for you. There's probably a book to be written and ma- jury's out whether or not I write it, uh, using content from this show. Cause we've just talked to so many awesome podcasters and all of them are finding ways to kind of respect the medium, understand the cliches and the tropes and, you know, why they exist and ultimately do things their way and bring their own sound and style to this. I think the book might be titled, but first we have to go back. Oh my God. That's, that is a banned phrase on flash forward because I found myself using it all the time. And I finally was like, I have to stop. You just hedged my question, which was like, this is a perfect show where you'd have to be like, so we're going to go over here. It's going to be awesome. But first we yeah. have to go back because <laughs> you can't really do much of your show without context setting, without right. the backstory and the basis. for the, So that's my question is how do you put your own spin on it? How is this when teaching this material, when that stuff appears on your show, what makes it your show and not some general science show? Yeah, I think it's funny. I found myself saying that a lot, like a lot on the show. And finally I was like, this has to stop. And so it it's is going to be the book. The- it's, it, first, we have to go back. <laughs> how the world's best podcasters do this their way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that um, the way that I do it now is, and this has been, a, I think, a bit of a journey for me on the show is leaning more into my, not just personality, but my presence as a host. So the first season of the show, I am very like, I try to be as minimally present as possible. Like, you don't know what I think. I am just there to like link up quotes, right, from the experts. You know, I had just graduated from journalism school where they like teach you like, oh, yes, like it is not your job to have opinions about things, which I now know is like not true. (laughs) Um, And so as the show has gotten gone on, I've gotten much more comfortable kind of being like, hey, here's what I think. Or like, hey, I didn't understand this. So let me just explain to you kind of like what I needed to understand before I could tell you this thing. We have an episode, for example, that's coming out and it's about economics and my degree is in biology. Like, I don't know very much about economics. And so in that episode, I literally say I had to go find out what these very basic terms meant. So let me tell you what I found, you know, because it is, I think, a little bit more honest. And also it does kind of, I think, explain to the listener why they're hearing some of the things they're hearing and why we're doing some of the moves we're doing. Because frankly, a lot of what you hear on Flash Forward is just a like narrativized version of my research process. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so I think that if I need something explained to myself, if I find myself in a point where I'm like, wait a minute, 
why is this like this? I will now just say that in the episode and be like, yeah, I had this question. And so I went and found out and here's what I found out, right? For you. Because I think that that, well, A, it helps me avoid my band phrase, <laughs> but also I think it, it gives the show kind of a transparency and a little bit of a like, I love listening to people's research processes. I think that's super fascinating, like what questions they have at what points in time. And so it kind of gives it hopefully a little bit of a, a fun kind of like, oh, you're hearing me figure this out, kind not in real time, obviously, because it's very scripted and like cut together, but kind of in real time, you're hearing what I had to learn in order to get to the place we go in the episode. So our next clip, we're going to move forward. You might say we're going to flash forward. <laughs> eh? no? Hey. Eh? Anyone listening? No? Still with me? No? Okay, cool. Wah, wah, you know wah, what you're wah. getting into, dear listener. <laughs> uh, we're going to move forward in the same episode. And the second clip gets at this question, very minor question. What is life anyway? Uh, yeah, TBD. We'll find out. And, you know, the real question is, what should we be looking for on other planets? Like, what is life? How are we finding life, this, this ephemeral idea on other planets? And to set us up, you're talking with planetary scientist Michael L. Wong, and he's come up with some criteria for identifying what he calls life with a Y instead of an L- I. Loif? Or Loif? Loif. Loif. <laughs> is that how he pronounces it? <laughs> yes, he pronounces it Loif. I love that. It's, it just feels pulled from like Futurama or something. Um, yeah, it's. It's terrible, but I love it. Amazing. I love it. I love it. And yeah, he made it up to broaden our Earth-centric understanding of life. And so in the clip, the first voice we hear is you, Rose. Then we're going to hear from Mike. And we're going to hear two other voices later in the clip. If you're listening, just know that they're also scientists. Okay, let's hear the clip. So Mike's life, with a Y, consists of four different processes. And so the, the generic processes that we outline are dissipation, autocatalysis, homeostasis, and learning. Okay, what do those words mean? Dissipation means being able to harness energy somehow. You and I eat food, plants use the sun's rays, that kind of thing. Autocatalysis just means being able to reproduce somehow. Homeostasis is sort of the opposite in that life should be able to uh, exert regulatory feedbacks to maintain itself. And learning is, well, learning. Using these parameters, Mike hopes that they can avoid accidentally missing something really interesting because they are making assumptions about what life might look like. Other people have suggested that instead of looking for biology, we should be looking for technology. So I I mentioned biosignatures before, but there's also a growing field that's looking for technosignatures, signals of technology. Like uh, one example that comes to mind is there was a paper a couple years ago that was trying to identify alien civilizations by looking at the night side of the planet to see if there were city lights illuminating the night side, like if the night side was brighter than you expected it to be. Of course, technosignatures also make assumptions about what life might be like out there in the universe. As some people have rightly pointed out, advanced could mean that you don't see the kind of technology we have on Earth, the kind of technology that is leading us to uh, a global crisis in climate change, the kind of technology that leads us to artificial scarcity, hunger, war. That technology might actually not be advanced. How do you get academics and scientists to sound colloquial or is that actually not their job and that's your role to play to translate? 
Hmm. I think it's both. Uh, the two things you just said, which is that I tend to talk to academics who are pretty good at talking. Often I will, before I interview somebody, I will, or before I email them asking for an interview, I will go and listen to a talk they've given or see if I've heard them on any other shows before or whatever it is. And so I know what they're going to sound like. Other times I think that, you know, if, if, if the person is the person to talk to, then we'll talk to them. Right. And like, it's not their job to be like fun on a podcast, right? Like, you know, um, their job is to research cancer or whatever it is that they're doing. Um, and I do a, a lot of editing of these clips that you hear. So I don't know for sure for the two that you just heard, but for most scientists I talk to, I do a lot of trimming out asides, trimming out ums and ahs, kind of like picking and choosing the things that you hear. But also, I mean, I spend a lot of time on the phone with these folks. And so often the first 20 minutes is I am going to tell you my paper in paper terms, right? Like I'm going to basically read to you the abstract of my paper. And then by the end, they kind of loosen up and often I'll go back and ask them a couple of questions that I wanted to ask them or I already had asked them at the beginning, just to kind of get it in a little bit more of a easy to understand way. I also tell them on the phone before we start, I say like, here's the audience. They are interested in science. They have undergraduate degrees. Like here's who we're talking to. So they can have that person in their head before they start talking to me. So it's kind of a combination of a lot of different things. But I I feel like my job is to make these scientists sound as personable and as kind of understandable as possible. And so that's like part of my work is to do that. Um, I find like it's my responsibility because like, yeah, if you have a scientist who's like going on for five minutes in ways that people can't understand, it's bad for my show because people are going to stop listening and it's bad for them because people aren't going to want to like hear what they have to say. One of the things I notice on your show, Rose, is you seem to be striving towards like some kind of first principle thinking where there's just lots of questioning everything. You're always redefining the parameters or you're like, it's this, but wait, that means this, but wait, that means this. And it's almost like, where do you stop that cycle to just like mm-hmm. kind of advance the plot? I hesitate to ask double barred questions, but I have kind of a two-parter here. So one is, what do you hear from your audience that the show does for their like knowledge of science? Like what's the end result for them? Because you're clearly pushing their thinking. And why does that matter to you so much? Mm. Good. That's a good question. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think that I got into this and by this, I mean, whatever job I have, which is basically journalism. And and even before that with science, like I really have always wanted to know like why things are the way they are. Why is it like this? And does it have to be like this? Right. And this could be almost anything. And so I think that for me, I care way less. I want listeners to understand what we're talking about and to understand the science and tech or, you know, history or policy or whatever it is that we're talking about on the show. But for me, it's way more important for them to come away with a sense that things don't have to be the way they are and that the future isn't this sort of predetermined thing that is set by very rich people who, you know, run the mega tech companies or whatever it is, or even just scientists, right? I think that, you know, the big sort of overarching ethos of the show and the sort of thing we often say is like, imagine better futures and to kind of push back against the kind of nihilism that I think exists and the kind of sort of feeling that you as just a regular person 
have no say in what happens next, because that's not true, right? We know that from history, that that's not true. And so I think that for me, I really want to equip people with the questions to ask about the future. So when they see something coming to their town or happening near them, they know like that they are A, allowed to ask questions about it and B, kind of what some of those questions might be, but also kind of the overarching sense that none of this is natural, right? Like none of the ways in which we've organized ourselves as humans is inherently necessarily the right way or the only way. And I think that's way more important to me that people leave with that idea to question everything and to kind of think about like, well, wait, why are we doing it this way? And is there a better way to do it? More so than like, do you remember, you know, how to figure out if there's life on Venus via spectroscopy, right? Like, I don't care if you remember that stuff. I just care that you're thinking like, oh yeah, wait, what are we looking for? And like, why are we looking this way? Like asking those big questions. In our final clip, we're going to get into one of the more, uh, is a type of scene I think that Flash Forward is, is famous for, which is one of the science fiction scenes. And in the clip, we hear two different voices. These are workers at some kind of space station, and their job is to look for alien life. And then one of them notices an unusual sign. Let's listen. This signal looks weird. <laughs> oh, here we go again. Come on, this is literally our job. It's never aliens, dude. That's the whole thing. We're out here in the middle of nowhere, and it's never aliens. Can you at least look? Fine. Here. This one. That's a lot of heat for a planet that isn't supposed to have that much. According to this, we checked in on this planet about three billion years ago, and it looked totally different. Volcanoes. No. The atmosphere isn't ashy. We'd be able to read that. It's like the planet is cooking itself somehow. Hydrothermal vents? Maybe. There's a lot of water, but most of the heat signatures are coming from land. Fires? There definitely are some, but not enough for the sustained global heating we're seeing. Methane seeps. That's the most likely as far as I can tell. But this planet didn't have any of those when we checked in last. And those things don't tend to just show up out of nowhere. So you think that there's life on this planet that has started cooking itself somehow? I mean, I don't know. (laughs) Life that arose and got powerful enough to change the planet and decided that it would try and destroy itself? I mean, when you put it that way. (laughs) Just all got together and was like, hey, I know. With all this power we have and planetary reach, let's see how bad we can make the conditions for ourselves. That would be fun. (laughs) Do you have a roster of people that are just willing to do these kinds of things for you? Or (laughs) how do you get folks to actually voice this? Yes, I do have a, a set of voice actors who I um, I really love. And that was, you heard uh, Henry Alexander Kelly and Brett Tubbs, who are two people who you hear on the show a lot, who are both just really good and like game to, I mean, they both played like cryogenically un- unfrozen dogs. Like they are willing to do anything and they're great. They're so fun to work with. So yes, I have a roster of folks that I go back to a lot um, and who uh, 
who are always, always so happy to, to do fun ones. And I get to pay them thanks to Patreon. So I'm, I'm really lucky to work with some really talented folks. You're, this is great because it's almost like you were in my head this entire damn interview, Rose. It's like you're a podcaster um, because I was about to ask how you fund such an ambitious project. I think one of the things I'm acutely aware of on this show is we're very privileged to talk to folks who have very ambitious type shows and not everybody listening has that yet. And maybe they don't ever want it. Maybe they love just doing you know single guest interviews and that's great. That's a craft. That's a way to self-express or grow a business. I get it. But a lot of people are interested in doing these more dynamic type productions. And I think the big barrier, in addition to perhaps time and skill, is how do I fund that? How do I you know, pay these people? When you're somebody who doesn't yet have that big audience, is this something you have to work up to until you have you know, the Patreon kicking into high gear or sponsors because now you have a big audience? Like, Take me back to the very beginning. How do you start to build something that is heavier lift? when you're not like a quote unquote successful or, or late stage show? Yeah, it's a really good question. And um, my answer is sort of mushy, which is that when I first started doing this, I was just out of grad school and I was doing a lot of freelancing to fund other stuff. I did the first season of this show, which had the same format, which was the fiction and, and um, journalism. And I didn't really know how much to charge. And so I was, I was paid $250 an episode for the first season, <laughs> which in hindsight, I'm like, why did I say yes to that? Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah. And so I think, you know, I funded it because I had other work and I was doing a lot of other freelancing. Now the show is funded by Patreon and by ad sales. And I think that the nice thing is that the ad sales market has changed so much in that it's easier to get ads as an independent show than it used to be. It used to be like if you were an independent show and you were doing this kind of weird thing, like I, you know, this sort of blend of fiction and journalism, which actually made the show kind of like weirdly untouchable for a little while because the big fiction places were like, well, the fiction is so short. It's not really the main thing of the show. And then the journalism places were like, oh, fiction, we don't touch that. Right. So like it was actually really hard to find people who wanted to sort of support the show. But now I think that there's a lot more advertisers out there who know what podcasts are. It's a lot easier to get advertising. But I think it's hard, right? Like there's a certain amount of privilege that exists in being able to just kind of like work at it for a while, not being paid very much. But I also was a team of one until last year. So I did all of this by myself for the first season. I did a lot of the voice acting myself. And so if you listen to it, you hear me just like doing voices. It's horrible. Um, how did you like, how do you but, even decide like what, what needs voice acting? Like how do you go from the science related things that we heard earlier in the first two clips to... Like, okay, now the scenario is imagine two folks in a space station looking for life and this is the dialogue. Like, can you, I know a lot of it is feel, kind of like the balance of intention and intuition is always tough to parse, but maybe you could take us into this specific clip. Is this coming after? Are you doing the fiction piece first, then finding the science? Like, how did this little moment come to be? Do you do you recall? Yeah, so so I think for a lot of these, it, it is like kind of a chicken and egg thing. Sometimes I'll have an episode idea and have like a very clear idea of what the fiction is going to be. And I'll be like, I know what I want. I'm, I'm going to do this. Other times I will do all the interviews and then kind of the fiction will come out of that um, and kind of like be based on some of the stuff that I heard from people. For this one, I knew that I wanted to have two fictional pieces, at least in this episode, one sort of from the perspective of Earth and then one from the perspective of 
an alien looking for us? Because I find that like a really fun kind of reversal question to think about, which is like, if aliens were looking for us, how would they find us, right? Like that's kind of like a fun thought experiment. Um, And so it kind of flew out from there because yeah, it was like, imagine an alien race or species or whatever it is that is so advanced that they find us and they look at us and they're like, what are you bozos doing? (laughs) Like why would you, what's going on down there? And that's a classic thing in science fiction, right? You see that in all kinds of sci-fi of like, yeah, they find us and they're like, oh, you guys suck, (laughs) you know? But but that was sort of what I wanted to play with. Rose, the work you do is incredible. It's uh, even more impressive knowing that you are sort of independently led and doing this, what started as a solo endeavor. So as a fellow indie podcaster, major props. I'm exhausted just thinking about what you do and knowing what you do. (laughs) Um, But please keep doing what you do because I I really appreciate it. I know your listeners do and, and now our listeners too. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. You asked really good questions. Oh, wow. Thank you. Okay. Day made. I'm done. Done. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. This episode was produced by Andrea Moraskin. Original music throughout the show, courtesy of Tyler Litwin. You can learn more about me and my projects, including my free newsletter for creative people, my course on podcast development, my books, my speaking, everything at jayaconzo.com. Three Clips is a Castos original series. Castos believes in going deeper with the craft of podcasting, deeper with your subject matter in a world trending shallow. And so in addition to offering podcast hosting and analytics and distribution software, table stakes for most tech vendors today, if you ask me, Castos has also built out a suite of tools that help you create a private podcast. So whether you're an in-house communicator or marketer trying to serve your team better, or you're somebody like me, maybe you're an independent creator or like Rose, who's an independent creator, and you'd like to provide something behind a paywall or a subscription event, a private podcast. Check out all those tools and more at castos.com, C-A-S-T-O-S.com. All these links are in your show notes. And now it's time for our bonus segment, where every episode we ask our guest for a podcast they'd recommend that isn't at the top of the charts, a show they want to show some love to. We call this segment, Play It Forward. So I would love to recommend a show called Gender Reveal, which is hosted by Tuck Woodstock. And it is an incredibly good interview show about gender, probably obvious from the name Gender Reveal. I think Tuck is an incredible interviewer, and they get really amazing guests. And I think that it has been really instrumental for me in hearing it and thinking about gender and sort of like what that even means to go back to the like, why are things the way they are, you know, Um, and also a lot of insight into like what experiences of gender are like for people, as well as kind of like news about what's going on. So I just find the show really great to listen to and talk as an amazing interviewer. So the show is called Gender Reveal. um, And you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. All right, that's it for this episode. I'm Jay Akonzo, and as always, I believe great podcasting is not about who arrives. It's about who stays. So thank you so much for staying with me, and I'll talk to you every Monday with a brand new episode of the show. See ya.